Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This evening we're thinking about the good life, and it's festival season at the moment, isn't it? Whether you'd rather see Paul McCartney on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury, or the new Porcelain Moncar towing up the track at Goodwood, it's great to enjoy good things, isn't it? And we're going to see that to live a radically life-affirming life, uh, to live a full-blooded, authentic life, is to respect, to revere, to be in a relationship with the author of life, the way to really grab life by the horns is to fear God. Last week in the first half of Ecclesiastes, we were introduced to the words of the preeminent king, and he taught us some painful truths. He took the lessons of his life and he applied them to ours. There is nothing to profit from in this life in light of our certain death. It is all vanity. And God has made it like that so that we might fear him. Under the sun of this world, God is humbling us so that we would know our place. The king was trying to be like God earlier in chapter two, building his own great works for himself and his pleasure. But God has shown him in the facts of life that he is merely an animal. He will rot in the ground like a rat and who knows what will happen to him afterwards. Would you turn back with me to chapter three, uh, verse 18? for a moment. Toward the end of that section, 
the king says this. I said in my heart, sorry, 3 verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to the one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And what God does in those first three chapters is existentially humble us, if I can put it like that. We are not God. All our little kingdom-building efforts will come to nothing. We have nothing to offer in the light of death and eternity. And if you kept reading through to chapter 6, verse 9, one of the big things the king does is drive home what goes wrong if you ignore what he says in chapters 1 to 3. But that humbling is meant to be like a shepherd's goad, poking us in the right direction. Life really is gainless, but our only recompense is to fear God. Which chapter 5 tells us, in the first place, means coming to listen to God rather than dictating to him and what he should do for us. Fearing God is more than just being scared uh, or even more than being reverent uh, and respectful, uh, but coming to him. His purpose is that we would be driven to our knees and before him if we've not been already, or that we stay on our knees before him and not be tempted to think we can stand on our own two feet. But in that painful lesson, you may have noticed, um, there are also shafts of light poking through the canopy of gloom. There is enjoyment to be found in the hand God has dealt us in life. As well as the words of the king being goads, we're also told at the end of the book in chapter 12, verse 10, that he sought to find words of delight and to uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now that is partly a comment on the quality of the writing, I think, um, but it also speaks about the path of truth and delight that he lays out before us. Last week, we focused mainly on the gainlessness of life in this world. And this week, we're going to focus mainly on the goodness. And if we've read the book through closely, which I really encourage you to do uh, in the next week, and we'll notice that the king takes us in a journey. So in chapter 2, it says uh, he hated life. In chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, he despairs that it would be better um, to be already dead or even never to have been born. But by chapter 9, verse 4, he muses that it's better to be alive than dead. And by chapter 11, verse 7, which we'll look at next week, he can even say um, it's pleasing to live under the sun. Life is pleasing. There is an upward arc from hating life to loving life. And we're going to trace some of those key staging posts in that journey as we scan through the second half of the book. It starts in chapter 6, verse 10. I do turn back there, over there for a moment. And it summarizes in that verse the outcome of the first half before raising the questions of the second. So in 6, verse 10, the king says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Basically, and being a creature, we can't fight with the, God, uh, with the way that God has frustrated the world. 
But it's even, it seems that even when that is established, humanity still wants to be able to grasp some sort of mastery or control, clinging to some notion that we can understand what's really going on, even if we can't control it, that we've cracked the code of this crooked world. 6 verse 11. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Humanity um, basically has an awful lot of chat uh, about how we should live and what the future should be like or will be like. But who really knows what is good? And who can find out what will happen in the next generation? After instilling in us some existential humility in the first half of the book, in the second, he instills some epistemological humility. Compared to God, um, we're not very clever, and we can't crack the code of this crooked world. But rather than torpedoing everything, um, although the king does have a few missiles left in his hangar, um, he does, in bigger clearings of light, in 6 verse 10 to 11 verse 6, give us something of an outline of the good life, a better life. With the right fear of God, there's a possibility of meaning without mastery, for contentment without control, for goodness, even though we can't gain anything. There's a wise way in a crooked world. And that starts in chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 12, with depth. There's a better way to live in a crooked world, in the face of death and oppression and idiocy. We'll read some of those verses in chapter 7 again. A good name is better than a precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Life-fearing God is not about dismissing the world, but about being deeply in tune with it. The life of faith is not um, like the Tony Blair meme, if you've seen that, where he's sickly smiling, sticking his thumbs up while the world behind him is burning. If you want to live well, it's good to be deeply acquainted with reality, to be in the house of mourning, to know the pain and cruelty of death, not to be in denial, or, medicalizing, or medicating ourselves with distractions in life. A couple of years ago, I, I took a funeral of a man who died relatively young, and he had three children. The youngest was 10. And it was a real sobering experience to see a 10-year-old come to terms with the fact that it was his father who was in the coffin in front of him. Parties are, are really great in their place, but in the face of death, and that is where you get a chance of a dose of reality and wisdom and a proper fear of the Lord. And it's not just death. The word sorrow in verse 3 is the same word as angry in verse 9. It's a word often used in the Bible for God's anger at sin, human evil. And when we see some of the oppression and injustice of the world, the best course of action is not to laugh it off, but to mourn with those who mourn. Or verse 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. To start with, an understanding of the good life involves deeply grieving, as God does, at death and evil done under the sun.
Fearing God does not lead to frivolous or superficial escapism, but to a godlike depth. And you might know um, some godly men and women who really display that. We can't cover all these verses, but he concludes in verse 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Being wise is a, is a better way to face the world. There is advantage to it. Being wise is a bit like being rich in the cost of living crisis. It doesn't mean it doesn't sting, but savings are a shelter against the storm. They're a form of protection. Well, wisdom shelters life uh, in this crooked world. It allows us to engage with real depth and feeling and humanity, to be truly alive. And that is a great advantage. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, the king says. He reminds us in um, verse 13 and 14 again. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Wisdom is an advantage, but it doesn't equal control of your life or autonomy, or independence from your creator. He has made it so that no matter how wisely or rightly you live, you cannot determine the outcome of things, and you can't twist his arm. Having said that, even though wisdom is limited, the king has given us some positive encouragements about the good life here. Fearing God means that we don't have to run away or deny the problems of life, but to be in tune with them, not to be animals, just surviving and producing as much as possible for the next generation, feathering our nests while the rest of the world burns, but to have a real human, perhaps even godlike depth as we encounter a crooked world. There is meaning even though we can't master everything, there is contentment even though we can't control things, and there is goodness even though we can't gain anything. Now, I imagine some of you are thinking this is meant to be the goodness uh, week, and we're still talking a lot about dealing with badness. Um, well, we're finally getting there, uh, I promise. Here's another clearing of light. And there is a great delight to be had in the good things that God has given us. Please, would you turn with me to chapter 9? And in chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, the king reflects on the fact um, that one day to the next, whether we're righteous or wicked, we don't know whether we're going to encounter love or hate. So on the 15th of April, 2013, some people thought they were turning up to cheer finishers at the Boston Marathon, and a bomb exploded and ended or changed their lives forever. But somewhere else in Boston that day, unexpectedly, a man may have woken up and had his first encounter with the love of his life. We don't know what we'll face day to day, apart from that one day we will face death. But it is better to be alive, the king says by 9 verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward for the memory of them, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. And here's the big thing in this chapter, I think. 
And God really has given us lots of good things to delight in under the sun, starting in verse 9. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at what you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to where you are going. This is part of another upward arc in Ecclesiastes. These enjoyment sayings, you may have noticed, have been positioned throughout the book, and they've been gaining in intensity and momentum. The grammar moved from the indicative to the imperative, from description to demand. Previously, back in chapter 2, the king had just observed that there is nothing for a person, better for a person, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But now he's commanding us, commanding us uh, to get out the best of wine and much more. Knowing God, knowing our creator, means that we can really enjoy the good things in this life. That is, in fact, um, the reason God created them. He approves. He smiles at such activities. I think so often we can feel guilty uh, for enjoying good things, but that is another way of being dehumanizing. Someone commented to me the other day, actually it was Tim who commented to me the other day, um, that whenever someone says uh, something positive about what we wear or have, and I think most of, the, most of us can be guilty of a version of this, we're so quickly to say, oh, I got it on sale, or it's from a charity shop, or it's been handed down, or whatever. Well, God says, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. I think one area we're better at this than others uh, is at weddings, even if we're not perfect. It is great. It is godly to celebrate good things, to see a bride look beautiful in her dress. And those of us who were here last Saturday, it was a joy to see Theodora walking down the aisle, wasn't it? And a joy to eat lots of cake uh, with friends in St. Andrews. Now, not every day is a wedding day, and some days are uh, very much not. But that attitude of unbridled delight is approved of as we enjoy the good things God has given us. Some of us are married or, or will get married, and don't let life pass you by, the king says. Give time to enjoying yourself with your husband or wife. Work can be an idol, but rightly understood as part of what God has given us to do, we can enjoy a job well done. A student moved from a D to an A, a patient rehabilitated, a tricky bit of code debugged so your system can be fully operational again. The king has made clear earlier that work is ultimately gainless. But if we understand that God has given us uh, this or that to do at this time, we can try and enjoy what we can of it. And we don't need to be striving uh, from one career or hobby to the other uh, looking for the next fulfillment or thinking we might finally gain something as we change, um, thinking that thing will satisfy. It won't. And if you want to be truly satisfied and guilt-free in the good things of life, the way to do that is to receive things thankfully from a generous God. Some of us um, think this is maybe easier than others. Some of us struggle more than others. And speaking to myself as much as anyone 
I used to be an absolute Eeyore about almost everything. And some of you probably think that I've not changed that much. But believe me, I've come a long way. And it's the word of God that's been dragging me. And some of you may need to hear this, um, like I did and still need to. Uh, Embrace life. God may not have given you everything you want. Um, He will not have given you the same things as those around you and your family and friends. But you live in his world, and he has given you things to enjoy. So when appropriate, um, delight in them. That is the good life. If we fear him, God smiles at our enjoyment of his good gifts to us. But like he does every time, it seems, um, the king doesn't want us to get overly carried away. We still can't manipulate or control or master our own life um, or what happens after our life or anyone else's life, for that matter. The end of verse 10 tells us we're still going to die. And on the face of it, under the sun, that is actually a tragedy. Death really is bad, an aberration to the good life in this world because we can't delight in any of the good things that God smiles upon when we're dead. For many of us at the moment, perhaps, um, we, we sympathize with what W.H. Jordan wrote. He said that the reality of death is like the sound of a distant thunder at a picnic. I think I've miswritten down that quote. I think it's the sound of a distant thunderclap at a picnic, the reality of death. It's not pleasant, and it will need to be faced sooner or later. And we'll think more about that next week. But fearing God while we live means delighting in the many good things he gives us. The king counsel to us to live a good life so far in this crooked world is to develop a godlike depth and to enjoy God's good gifts. But is there any point in getting on in life if everything under the sun is vanity? Well, yes, the king says. We can live a God-fearing Decisive life. And that's our third point, decisiveness. Just as a reminder, um, we're in a section of Ecclesiastes, which is all about how we don't really know how the world works. And we don't have a time machine, and we don't know what will happen in the future. But right at the end of this section, the king knows a good God who has has the world in his hands and knows there's a good way for those who fear him. Our ignorance and uncertainty about the future could lead to a crippling indecision. The world is crooked, bad things can happen at any time, and the temptations might be to retreat and close ourselves off from the world, to be tentative about everything. But the king says, risk is right, embrace life, live a little. And that's in chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. And for the last time, do please tell me it's chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know what, not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Now, casting your bread upon the waters is about trade and not about feeding the ducks. And the king says, um, put your trading ships out there. Um, Yes, your grain could be destroyed in a storm. Your oil tanker could run aground. The world is crooked. 
but it's in God's hands. You can't control it. You can't know the future. So go for it. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. It's either about diversifying uh, your investments. The king isn't saying put all your savings in crypto. Uh, there's a healthy, world-engaging, responsible risk, and there's reality-denying, irresponsible risk. Um, but you don't know what disaster will come on the earth. Uh, so um, spread widely, live a little. Or it could be about being generous when you have stuff because you don't know when disaster will come. Give a portion to seven, even to eight. Be generous to as many as you can. In fact, better to overextend yourself. Pull up another chair, buy another round. You might not be able to in the future. Again, I think the general human predilection is to think that we can master life, that we can play the system. We watch a film about Michael Burry, the guy who predicted the 2008 financial crash, and sometimes we think we can be like him, forgetting that the other uh, million finances in the world couldn't call it right. Uh, 11 verse 4 says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not weep. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You can't beat the system of the world and because you aren't the author of it. You can't understand the way the wind is going to blow, like you can't understand the way human consciousness comes to a baby in the womb. Watch Clarkson's farm. You can't perfectly judge the ideal day or time for sowing a crop. Um, you've just got to go for it. Otherwise, you'll be frozen by indecision. You can spend endless energy constantly monitoring house prices so you can buy at the most opportune time, but you don't really know what's going to happen. Fearing God, really understanding the way he has made the world crooked, means we shouldn't vainly try and game the system, but we can be liberated to live, to try, to get on with life. But we shouldn't try and escape from the insecurity of the world either. That is equally stupid, another way of attempting to control. We can't withdraw and put up the barricades and seek to shield ourselves from the storms of the world. I think Christians can sometimes have the attitude uh, to be tempted uh, of sort of bunkering down, uh, closing ourselves off from the world while we wait for the new world to come. But we can't just go into little silos with our thousand tins of baked beans and a lifetime supply of toilet roll. You can't beat the system that way anyway. And that life-denying attitude is never something the Bible commends. Fearing God in a crooked world actually means you can be decisive, let go of trying to master your own life and control your destiny, just live it. Cast your bread, give your portion, sow your seed, just do something. Verse six, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do, you do not know which will prosper, this or that or whether both alike will be good. We are not God. We don't know what's going to happen, but we can be liberated to live. Fearing God means you can be decisive. Listen to him and what he thinks. Pray about it. And even though things are uncertain, we don't know there's another pandemic or, or war or whatever around the corner, we can make a decision, grab hold of life and do something. The key to the good life in a crooked world is to fear God. 
The first step is letting go of any idea that you can perfectly map out your own destiny. Invictus is wrong. You are not the master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. We don't know all the answers, and we don't know what will happen in the future. But we can know the creator. We can fear God. We can listen to him. And we can seek to live our lives with depth and delight and decisiveness. Life will be hard and desperately sad at times. But there is good to be enjoyed from God under the sun. Just as a, a thought uh, for next week, we'll be thinking about the book as a whole and where it's going, particularly in the last chapter. And if you do have a chance to read it, um, why not think about how much uh, the king talks about kingship and what good and bad kingship does and what he seems to be hoping for. That's for next week, but let me leave us in prayer. Our Father, thank you that we can know you, that you have shown us how to live in this crooked world. Thank you for your good gifts, which we can enjoy. And please help us to fear you and embrace the life you offer. Amen.